This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. This is a special early release of today's episode because it is um, in conjunction with the decision to cancel the upcoming book tour. Obviously, many events in the U.S. are moving in that direction, and I wanted to give you a little bit of context about um, some of the conversations that have been going on in my household as I move toward making this decision. Um, I also wanted to say, with my book tour being canceled, um, books were bundled with the tour tickets, and... I hope that you'll consider supporting um, this project anyway. Um, I want to shout out some local booksellers that were booked to work at um, the different venues and would then have seen profits um, from selling this book. So in LA, we had Skylight Books. In Brooklyn, we had Books or Magic. In Boston, we had Brookline Booksmith. In Philadelphia, Giovanni's Room. In Washington, D.C., Kramer Books and Afterwards. In Chicago, Women and Children First. In San Francisco, Dog-Eared Books. In Portland, Powell's Books. And in Seattle, Third Place Books. So I would love to ask you to, even if your tickets are being refunded, consider um, going on and supporting one of those indie booksellers by buying the book from them. Or hey, you could buy it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble if that is easier for you. You could buy it at Apple Books um, because it will also be available as an ebook. And hey, here's the greatest news: my audiobook also comes out March 24th. In the coming days, I am going to be having some virtual book events um, from my home. I am super bummed um, that these events had to be canceled because this is a project I've worked on perhaps the hardest I've ever worked on anything and um, it's the most personal but I am so grateful that I'm in a position to um, be able to make a decision to protect myself my audience and those folks who live in my household so um, I won't be seeing you in the coming weeks but I hope you'll be reading me and hearing from me anyway and thank you so much for all of your support Hey, Queeros, Cammy here. Um, I don't know how to tell you this, but the book that I wrote is going to be published next week. And I'm very excited about it. And I hope that you've pre-ordered it. Please. Thank you. Uh, it's called Save Yourself. You can get it via saveyourselfbook.com. That will redirect you to um, all sorts of different booksellers. Or go get it from your indie bookseller. Come on! To end the show, I've got a chat with Katie Nishimoto, a um, an editor, a book editor. She works at the Dial Press, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, where her mandate is to publish queer books. Um, she also happens to be my girlfriend, and you're going to find that out like in the show, but I'll just tell you that up top. Um, this is a timely episode. I uh, wanted to have Katie on because... Uh, I thought that some things that we were talking about in our household about um, COVID-19 might be helpful for listeners of this show. You know, I know there are folks um, with chronic illness in every community, and I just, you know, we went into the studio to record this together. Um, I asked Katie to come in and record this because it felt like, you know, this is a person who has a job, a successful career, and who has, who's an impressive person and who's well-spoken and who also has, you know, an invisible um, way that, that this moment may impact her differently than other people. And I just know that there are listeners that that's also true for. And so um, Katie was awesome enough to give her time and I really hope you enjoy the episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Katie Nishimoto. I'm an editor at the Dial Press, which is an imprint of Random House. 
and I'm a mixed race person, and I'm new to LA. Oh, that's a good introduction. <laughs> um, also, we know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know each other? Well, we live in the same apartment. Yes, we do live in the same apartment. <laughs> um, yeah, we're dating. We're dating. Yeah. That feels like... Helpful to just... Uh, like a... Not, like, let's... Like, just... You know what I mean? It's not like a twist yeah. for later in the episode. <laughs> um, yeah, we're dating, mm-hmm. which is... What a great thing. It's awesome. It's totally awesome. And um, yeah, you are new to LA. You moved to LA... Um, what brought you to L.A.? Well, I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, I grew up in New Hampshire, and then I moved to New York after college. I lived there for 10 years, and I kind of, you know, I was very judgmental of L.A. I worked at a company that had a lot of folks who were based in New York and a lot of folks that were based in L.A., and I sort of thought everybody who moved to L.A. was selling out for, like, an easier, sunnier lifestyle, you know? Oh, my but God, I that's was, really funny. <laughs> I was a hard worker, you know, who could who could suffer and that would, you know, show how how hard I was really working, you know? Sure. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, I uh, lived in New York for 10 years and then what brought me out here was a bunch of different things. I think, um, you know, I had spent some more time out here in the past couple of years. I'd always come out here for work. And for me, I, you know, as you know, got pretty sick overnight about three and a half years ago and um, I had been a very healthy person for, you know, almost three decades of my life, which I'm very fortunate to be able to say. But I got very sick overnight and I have an autoimmune condition, which I now know a lot about. I know it's a very common experience to have a very difficult time getting diagnosed, to go to doctor after doctor and get conflicting reports and to have a challenging time finding treatment that works. Um, Now I know all of that. That was my experience. Um, At the time, you know, I felt very overwhelmed. I was very ill. I thought my, it got to a point where I thought I might have to, you know, quit my career and move back home. Um, Anyway, this is all to say that I eventually found a doctor who listened to me and who helped me find treatment. And after spending more time out here in LA, um, I started to realize that there was a lot about a lifestyle out here that worked a lot better for my health. And having been so close to to losing my health, um, I felt that I would chase it like it was the most important thing in my life, which of course, you know, it really is. So I had been thinking about moving out here for a while. Um, you know, the New York is a pretty difficult city to live in if you have... I want to stop you and ask you a couple other questions. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Before we keep going with the story? Because I feel like um, I know what you mean by you got sick overnight, but could you Mm. just elaborate on that point? Because I think think that's, like, important as we continue further. So what you mean is that, like, you were sort of, um, like, having a a typical—I don't even know, like, the not— fucked up words to use you were having like a typical experience of health like you were you were like an athlete I played rugby yes Um, I was was big into working out and bulking um, (laughs) as much as I could and Um, then you um when you say got sick overnight you mean that very suddenly mm -hmm. your your health changed very suddenly I remember the sign that I always look back on is I was it was over Labor Day I was at the New Hampshire State Fair of course and um I was going for the fried dough. I love fried dough. And I remember thinking after I had my first fried dough, I thought, I can't wait to get that second one. And I didn't want it. And anyway, then I, w- I was like, that's so that, weird. It's I'm never so happened sorry to me you had before. To deal with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, after that weekend, uh, I got back to New York and I um, had a lot of generalized symptoms that were very severe overnight. I was extremely fatigued. I had to, I couldn't make it through the day without falling asleep. I had a lot of muscle weakness, shortness of breath, weight loss, nausea, um, Nothing that was, you know, you know, extreme thirst, just a lot of very generalized symptoms that I couldn't, that didn't seem to point to anything specific, but that severely impacted my life. And at the time, because you, you kind of alluded to your career and where you worked and stuff, but I feel like even more specifics would be, would be interesting and helpful. So where did you work at the time and what was your job? Yeah, at the time I worked at a big talent, talent agency. I was a literary agent there and, uh... I love that job and it's, you know, a very intense job where there's 
you know, unlimited vacation because you, you know, essentially don't ever take it because you're always working no matter where you are. Very high pressure. Um, also very, you know, right. Very unlimited fun. vacation also meaning, um, hey, if you choose to use that vacation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've <laughs> really shown your colors. <laughs> yeah. So long hours mm-hmm. and um, very competitive uh, and very high pressure. And then you get sick mm-hmm. and have all of these changes. Mm-hmm. And then you now you were so we were talking about your decision to move to L.A. And I feel like I cut you off in the middle of that. But I just felt like it was helpful yeah, to add that yeah, context. So that. what were we talking about? Do you remember? Um, or I can just ask a question and bring us back in. I can't remember. I think you were talking about. Um, well, actually, let me. I have a few follow-up questions also on what you've already said. Because that's funny that you think that you thought L.A. was, like, a place to come and essentially, like, go out to pasture or whatever. Because that was not well, I, no, what not, I so much that. thought about L.A. I think it was, I thought, where people went who were sellouts, who were just going for oh, vapid? easier. Yeah, like, like easier vapid. life. Easy, but what does easier mean? I don't know. I don't know. People go to L.A. They would return to the New York office for a couple of days. They were skinnier. Their faces were glowing. They <laughs> were vegetarians. I don't know. <laughs> you, oh, you had that like, that thing that happens when you're a New Yorker, which is that you think everybody else is, everybody else has chosen, everyone else doesn't live here, and that's the problem with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe so. And I know you also were talking about finding out that your health was the most important thing mm-hmm. to you. And um, what had previously been the most important thing to you? Oh, man. Uh, well, I think, you know, truthfully, it was probably my career, um, achievement, success. You know, I I was on a very single-minded track in that direction. You know, um, it had been like that in high school for me. Um I, I know, you know, I know now that this is a very common experience, but um, it's also sort of a very overwhelming one to feel my experience was feeling that my career success and identity was, um, you know, the main place that I got my sense of value and worth as a person. You know, I think that's maybe what a lot of people in a capitalist, you know, society think, but um and you started that feeling in in high school yeah. when it wasn't like career focused. So what was the substitute for career in high school? Or do you remember having it before that? Like I I grew up in a very um achievement rewarding community. Mm-hmm. Like uh it was n- not so much about trying. It was like about succeeding. Mm. <laughs> um and I just think that like for me that made I see now how many things that prevented me from enjoying. I mean, I just, mm-hmm. we've talked about this um, interpersonally, but I just ran a 5K this last weekend. Yeah. And it was it was such a big deal for me because I, I never would have valued running a 5K before this last year of my life mm-hmm. where I have had this openness to starting things that I'm, that I don't have mastery of. Mm -hmm. Like before I would only have valued a marathon Mm -hmm. that I won that I had never trained for. You know what I mean? Like I want (laughs) to like get up on the morning of the marathon, go do it and, and win. And otherwise like nothing else in life is valuable Mm -hmm. besides that caliber. And that's really what I was trained to Mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really exciting, like breaking that down and just being like, oh, actually life is to be enjoyed. Like there is not just to be achieved. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I think for me in high school and growing up, I, uh, I don't think I had that exact same experience, but I, I knew that going to, I knew that in order to be, to have the success, you know, an achievement that I wanted to in my adult life, I would have to get into the best college possible to get into the best college possible. I needed to do the best that I could in high school. Um, and it was, it was easier in some ways for me to have ha- uh, success matched up with happiness in that environment because I didn't grow up in a tiny town in New Hampshire, but it was a small town. And how many businesses in this town? <laughs> oh man. Well, there's a gas station. Yeah, a <laughs> <laughs> really good library. Yeah, it's. A, I just. It's a. Ver, I. It's a. Um, 
when you said you were from like a town, it's not such a small town, but it's a, a smallish town. Mm-hmm. And I have been to this town with you and um, I felt that it was a size that was small. Yes. Well, and then that- when I went to your hometown, I thought, oh my, there were sidewalks that people would walk on. I mean, there's nowhere to walk on a sidewalk really in my town. You know, the houses are further apart. I also want to ask you, um, because you said earlier you're a mixed race person, mm-hmm. um, New Hampshire, a mecca of, of, of cultural intersection? Um, Is it, do, do you find that... <laughs> Well, in New Hampshire, you know, there's one area code for the whole state. And, you know, there's when we had phone books, there was one phone book for the whole state. And I always would go to our number in the phone book. And we're the you know only people in the whole state with our last name. And there were it was, you know, it's a very homogenous place. And I didn't meet, you know, there was another half, oddly enough, there was another half Asian family in town. They were half Thai. And then there were I think there was like one adopted Chinese person. And then that was pretty much it. And I didn't meet another half Japanese person that I wasn't related to until I went to college. So I didn't go to summer camps or anything like that. So I definitely felt, I definitely was very aware of my sort of racial difference the whole time I was, because I grew up in the same house. We lived in the same town. I mean, I knew everybody in the town growing up. What were some of the markers or things that like st- stand out to you today as being the like if you can think of a few examples of like moments you're aware of that difference um i mean that's a good question i think that or was it all the time it yeah it was pretty much all the time i mean i can think of sort of some examples that are you know, easy to place in this category, but they were more infrequent where, you know, a teacher says something about me being, I'm I'm probably, you know, the best one in the class because I'm Asian or people, you know, pulling the corners of their eyes when I'm in elementary school. Those are sort of classic examples. Those didn't even really hurt my feelings so much for for whatever reason. It just felt like the most expected version of something. Um, And I didn't even feel so much sometimes like the, uh, most unusual person because I had grown up with these people, you know, so sometimes it was somebody new moving in who was the more unusual person. Uh, But I was very aware of it the whole time I was growing up. I mean, it's, um, my family looked different. People, you know, would, I would hear stories from my parents. I think that was the biggest um, way that it became a part of my everyday experience. Um, Hear stories from my mom in particular about what her experience was like of having children who my mom is white who looked um like they weren't biologically hers right right and you know from my mom's white side of the family who you know has some progress to make in the you know whole area of equality oh that is very well said (laughs) um yeah I mean I I think it's I guess I was asking that question because, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it's like mm-hmm. um, to be a person of color. I do know, or um, or a mixed race person, or the intersection thereof. I do know what it's like to be a queer person, and sometimes to, um, like, to have the experience of like simultaneously feeling different a lot, and mm-hmm. then and then also of often forgetting I'm different, and being reminded, which is also interesting. Mm. Um, and I just don't, I don't know if it's at all equivalent. Like I, I do have the experience of being like, I'm the only one mm-hmm. that was really my experience of coming out in college. There was like one other, uh, queer person I was dating her. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, I know a little bit about that experience. I don't know that I've really ever had the experience of forgetting, um, I'm very, I've always been very aware of it, um, especially being, I mean, not, not, I don't even mean so much the queerness part, but the the racial aspect for me. I certainly don't think I've ever forgotten that I'm a mixed race person in a room. <laughs> um, but I think I'm like, I just am in a lucky category because it's like half Japanese, half white. That is like the most palatable combination of a mixed race person to like, for example, many white people, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, 
I don't know, actually. <laughs> You're saying, you know, and I don't know. I mean, one thing that's also true is we're the same um, generation American. Mm-hmm. And uh, both of our grandfathers fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandfather was Italian-American. Mm-hmm. And that looked very different for him than how I know you've described to me, like, hearing things were for your grandfather, who was fighting in World War II, and Japanese-American. Grandpa Nish was, I'm very proud of this, he was in the 442nd, which is the all-Japanese most decorated regiment, Um, and he was awesome. I mean, you know, from the time I knew him from zero to, you know, two years old. (laughs) However, I really loved him. He was my favorite grandfather, and um, very proud of that sort of big um, military side of my dad's side of the family. Oh, yeah, because that continued. You have Mm -hmm. folks that are, like— our generation who mm-hmm. are also in the military mm-hmm. um, and live in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, but anyway, just to, I want to just close one. Close it. I'm going to close this up. What I was saying is it was, I think it was easy for me to equate uh, success and achievement with happiness when I was in New Hampshire growing up in this small place because uh, all the barometers for achievement, you know, they, they were finite. You know, I knew all of the different categories, you know, sports, service, whatever they whatever they were, um, music. And I knew how high you could go with them. It was just like the, you know, sort of uh, horizontally and vertically, I knew the whole limit. And so I, I knew what I could do. You know, it was like, this is, if I do all of these things to the most, I've done it, you know? Um, and so it was easy for me to feel happy in that way because I felt like there's no more I could possibly do. Um, oh my God. Well, actually that's, that's interesting. Cause I was, this is why I like took us on the tangent there to talk about uh, racial identity and where mm-hmm. you're from, because I was wondering about that intersection, intersecting with achievement. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you, if, if you feel like um, constantly aware of your difference to be the best is like a great way of still having value, even though you're, you might have difference. Um, and I don't know if that had any intersection for you, but that's why I brought that up there. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe partly, I think, you know, uh, sometimes if you are doing everything right and having external success, nobody really looks at you too hard, you know, and that's, that can be a very good hiding place, you know? Oh, hiding behind <laughs> achievement. Yeah. yeah. But also say, I just, you know, one thing that I want to say is that um, this happens, especially actually most, mostly when I talk to other Asian folks, they, people are always, you know, they, if they hear me talk about, you know, career being my main, um, how it used to be my main source of identity or whatever achievement, um, there's this assumption that it has to do with me being um, half Japanese or half Asian if they don't know what version of Asian I am. And that really was not my experience at all. Um and it's funny, I've had that, uh, especially other Japanese folks or other Asian folks put that on me sort of without question all the time. And that really, that really didn't have anything to do with it for me. Hmm. Although, I mean, sort of in the way of like a traditional Asian household, you know, having to do certain things, but maybe it does have to do with it in the way you're describing in terms of feeling different and trying to figure out a way to um, fit in or hide in a way that hide. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I relate to that. Mm -hmm. I really do. Because I think in high school, it's like, okay, I'm the weirdest one, like gender wise, or one of the Mm -hmm. weird, one of the most atypical in terms of like gender nonconformity. What if I just become like the president of the spirit club and I like paint my face, (laughs) uh, half red and half white. And I go and like wave a giant flag when the football team scores, there can't be anything wrong with me because if, if there was something wrong with me, I wouldn't be here. You know, like for Mm -hmm. me, I felt like it was, um, I liked doing the things I did, but I, it also felt like there was a big, I mean, sort of related to stand up too. You know, it's like one great way to be like, I'm not afraid of people looking at me is to be like, look at me, you know? And like, (laughs) maybe, maybe that's healthy sometimes. And then sometimes it's also healthy to like have interpersonal conversations. If you're only going for like, you know, if the only time you want to be seen is when it's by thousands of people. And then other than that, you stay Mm -hmm. at your house. I just think that is a, a good way of like, um, yeah, like deflecting questions, you know, deflecting um, wonder or whatever, mm-hmm. deflecting uh, things that might feel shameful. 
Yeah, just trying as best you can to control how others are seeing you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um, spent a lot of time doing that, so I really yeah. got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how would folks have seen you in high school? What were you like? Um, well, you know, I had just emerged from my, you know, quote-unquote tomboy phase. And in that phase, you know, I was a real loser. You know what I'm saying? I had my Boston Red Sox hat and my, my two pairs of cargo shorts. And I was a real loser. I had a, a bob, you know. I don't know. I was, I was, and I, you know, barely needed a bra. It's so embarrassing, you know. So this was in middle school. And then when I went to high school, I sort of figured things out a little bit more. My little sister is very glamorous and really into makeup and shoes and things like that. And I never really got that far with it, but I sort of figured out just some different ways to um, fit in, I guess. And I found a group of friends that were girls that I think that also I think that also helped having a group of friends in that category rather than these guys that I had been friends with before so yeah I think people I was I don't know I was uh did everything right uh I was captain of this that and you know whatever sports team and playing the trumpet and marching band and then you know getting good grades and uh I think I was pretty nice to people it's not like I was definitely not a popular person, you know, but I was, I think I was well-liked. I felt pretty happy. I had never been, I was not well-liked in middle school, you know, when I was going through this, you know, awkward puberty stuff. So I think I figured it out a little bit by high school, how to, how to be. And I just happen to know this about you, um, that, that you, <laughs> you're going to at me like you're so mad at me, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just funny hearing you say, like, that you knew all the vectors and, like, mm -hmm. how high they all went. And you were the valedictorian of your high school class. Mm -hmm. And I, like, did that feel, well, first of all, can you confirm this on the air for the listeners? Yeah. yeah. So you in high school class in 2005. <laughs> <laughs> did that feel, um, like, did you want that kind of recognition for your work? Or would it have been more comfortable for you to like have? Because you were, you had to like give a speech, right? I did have to give a speech. I mean, this did is, you want that, or did you want like I have the best GPA? Oh no, you know no. what I mean? Yeah, oh, I do know what you mean. When <laughs> I had knew, I knew I had to give that speech. I thought this is very strange because getting good grades doesn't even necessarily mean you're smart. It just means you're good at school, you know, and I, I was good at school. It was a system that I really understood, you know. So I thought, what is being good at? getting grades have to do with uh, speaking to your classmates on the last day. I mean, I, I could not understand the correlation. There was really no way around it. I can't even remember what I said, but what I would have preferred, and this is pretty embarrassing, but is what I did do, which is to relax myself at night. I would list the different, you know, areas of my life that I, you know, could possibly do something. Sports, you know, okay. Music, okay. And I would check them off my list if I felt like I was, you know, winning at it, you know, and then that's how I relaxed myself. So that's what I would have preferred is just to be able to check that one off my list at the end of the day. But that speech was, um, I mean, really, what is, what does being the valedictorian have to do with, you know, having any message for the rest of the students? I told, I think I talked to them about not being afraid to fail, but I was like, but I was, which is why I'm up here. You know? <laughs> I wish to God that you had given that speech that you just said, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I have, like, can you imagine? I think I did say that something like that. But Wow. And so anyway, um, what, what happened next in your life? I went to college um, and I went to school at a place where you could take all of your classes pass fail. I mean, I was fully burned out. I kind of was like, I knew I had to get into the best college I could. I had done that. And then I took all my classes pass fail and sort of eased up a little bit, not in my, you know, passion for being in class, but in my, um, obsession with, uh, checking all the boxes in all these categories. I, I yeah, I mean, I hear that, but I, I also, um, do you mind my asking what school you went to? I went to Brown. And I think that it's interesting, um, because even though you took those classes pass fail, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I didn't go to that school, but I would assume it was academically rigorous because it's an Ivy League school. Yeah. So I just mean, it's funny to think about you <laughs> relaxing while 
taking classes yeah. at an Ivy League school. Well, I mean, I was in the humanities, so you, you can't really do that if you're in sort of the science and math area, take everything, everything pass, fail. But that's what I did. And it really was relaxing to me. Even just that little bit of pressure off, it really helped. That's awesome. Yeah. What did you, while you were in school, did you have an inkling of like what you might want to do next with your career? No, I didn't. I I really didn't know very much about the professional world. Um, I, when I was in college, it was it was before internships were paid, so I didn't have um, internships at you know places like you know wherever you go to try to figure out what you want to do or get some experience to put in your resume. You know, I worked at Walmart one summer. Um, I oh yeah, I feel like this is important to say also, like because you got to Brown and something you've also talked to me about is realizing a socioeconomic difference between you and some of the other students that mm-hmm. were at this school because it like is an Ivy, which I didn't realize. You know, when I was like applying to colleges, I didn't realize until I went to BC and then like went to parties at Harvard that endowment does factor into enrollment mm-hmm. for a lot of Ivy League schools and for a lot of schools, but I just mean. For Ivy League schools, it's like sometimes a different playing field. Mm-hmm. Like it's the the folks that are there because of who their parents are. Mm-hmm. Their parents are the most successful people in the country or even worldwide. Mm-hmm. And so like it's just a very heightened version of what the human world could look like. Yeah. I mean, that's just what I noticed, like walking across campuses like that. I didn't go to that school. Yeah. It was a, it was a culture shock for me um, because I had, you know, previously in high school and growing up in New Hampshire had sort of thought that if you, I I really believed in um, a merit-based system. I thought that the harder you try, the more you'll, the more you'll get. You know, the more whatever. And then, yeah, I mean, that's why I was a briefly a member of the College Republicans <laughs> when I got to school. Whoopsie Daisy. Whoopsie Daisy. Well, so was Whoopsie Daisy. <laughs> so was um wasn't Hillary Clinton? Yeah. Well, we just so, watched part of the Hillary yeah. documentary on Hulu last night, so and she's like go. talking about how she was in the College Republicans and she first got to yeah. college. And I, um, you know, here's the thing about growing up white: you can really <laughs> believe a lot of things that are said to you. A lot of things that are said to you are like, yeah, that's. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I didn't have that experience that you two share, you and Hillary. Um, <laughs> but I did sort of, uh, when I got to college, had this experience of realizing that people, um, that actually it sometimes you can be a super hard worker or have a lot of skills and or have a lot of talent. And that isn't necessarily the thing that gets you X, Y, Z. And, you know, even having, you know, learned that very sort of fundamental life lesson in college, I still feel I'm learning that on a daily basis. Like just to briefly um, talk about when I got sick and all of that, I think I had sort of, I've really had to try to let go of this idea or that I didn't even know I had about how if I just sort of am a good girl or do the right things that I'm somehow, you know, taking out an insurance policy on certain things not happening to me, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, so. but by the way, you didn't make up that idea. Like this is still, no matter how you are raised, um, the U.S. is a Christian influenced country, like massively. And one of the fundamentals of not like the Bible, but like the Christian religions and like, and practical faith teaching is that you will be rewarded for good acts, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and by the way, that's like the exact opposite of that is in the Bible. Like the Bible's like, what if everything shitty happens to you? Will you still believe? Like, that's the point of a lot of stories. It's about like, can your faith, um, survive your failure, you know, or Mm -hmm. your, or your suffering? Um, but that's not how we've like interpreted it in this in the U.S. at the very least. I think it is very much a, you know, I think about like the folks that initially came here, you know, and like who we actually like what the not the people that live here, but what our government descends from. Mm-hmm. And it's like white people coming over here from England and thinking that they were better than the folks who already lived here and imposing, you know, a religion that's about being rewarded 
as opposed to being connected. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just, of course, it makes so much sense to me that you would think you can, because I, f- I feel like that still. Yeah, it's hard to unlearn that. Um, and when I got to college and had this culture shock, I heard summer used as a verb for the first time. I had never heard that before. Oh, like we summer mm-hmm. on Nantucket? Yeah. That's a, an example of a place you could summer. Great job. You crushed it with that example. <laughs> <laughs> heard it. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, people went to boarding school, which I had only recently, um, a few years before that, realized wasn't just something that you read about in a chapter book. Like Harry Potter? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, just small things like that, that I was just very naive. You know, people went to, I mentioned not going to summer camp. I didn't even know that that was a thing that I feel like in some ways summer camp can be a little bit of a uh, socioeconomic signal in some ways. And depending, anyway, I had... I just never even heard of a summer camp, you know, that I would have ever gone to. I went to vacation Bible school for one week. Otherwise, you played in the bog in your backyard. I did play in the bog. It was very fun. (laughs) Walk around the bog. You know, you bring a bindle that you made from home. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's like what I was doing during the summer. (laughs) It was very confusing. (laughs) Yes. And working at Walmart. And um, Mm -hmm. I know you also had... That you also worked on campus mm-hmm. and off campus while mm-hmm. you were a student. Yeah, I worked at the mall downtown in Providence because I felt um, I also had my on campus jobs, but I felt very out of place. And I thought, where can I find regular people like me? So you I went, mean you felt out of place at Brown? At Brown, yeah. yeah. So I thought, where could I find the regular ones? So I went. I worked at the mall, and <laughs> it just felt a little. Where bit did more you normal. work at the mall? I worked at um, Hollister for a time, you know, and then I worked at J Crew. That was a lot more stressful because then you had to sell things. I don't really know very much about tank tops or whatever was going on there, <laughs> you know. And uh, I think that the two places I worked Hollister was a majority of the time. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You know, layering tank tops was going on around the, that time. That's oh why I'm thinking of that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Layering tank tops was like a true gift to people yeah. with large breasts. <laughs> Maybe also to people with small breasts. But to me, it felt like very much like, can you even see that I have breasts under here? You might just think it's an additional tank top. <laughs> have, I, have I dissuaded you from looking at any part of my body? Look, it's just 87 tank tops. There's nothing under here. It's blank. It's blank under here. <laughs> Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Okay, so you're at Brown, Mm -hmm. and then you're moving towards graduation Mm -hmm. times. And what did you think you would do next? Yeah, I had yeah, right. So I had no idea. Um, So what I did is I joined this group. It was called the Women's Launchpad, and it was set up to. It's a small group for women who are seniors who are graduating who didn't have professional female role models in their personal lives, and I really didn't. Um, And you know, my dad worked at. Uh, Sun Microsystems. So it wasn't um, that I didn't, you know, know that about some. I just I knew that I couldn't work at Sun Microsystems. And so I didn't which is really... like a computer programming place. Yeah. Okay. Bought by Oracle um, recently. Bought by Oracle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, so they make computers there. Make yeah. a computer. Sure. They make a computer system software. I don't know. Okay. Neither of us knows. No. Got it. Keep going. So yeah, software. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like. It. Yeah. So anyway, I was in this group and it was really helpful. I felt so humiliated to be in it and apply for it, which is so silly now when I think about it. But um, they they matched you up with a mentor who was a, you know somebody who'd graduated before, who was you know vaguely in your field. It was a tiny program when I was in it. it, had just started, so there weren't a ton of mentors. And then 
the other really nice thing about it is that they grouped you up with other people who were seniors who you might even know or be friends with, but like hadn't maybe talked to about like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do when I graduate, you know? So anyway, my mentor was a woman who worked in entertainment. She worked at Bravo. And so when I talked to her, I was like, you know, I guess I want to do publishing because I knew I knew book editors existed, you know, sort of. I knew that publishing companies, people worked there. Um, and then so she said, well, had you thought of, have you thought about working at literary agency agency is part of and I I had no idea what she was talking about you know but she um you know sort of told me a little bit about what it was then I you know classically googled my college and the company I was applying to I found somebody I said can you do a an informational interview with me which I didn't really realize is like I don't know that's a so anyway, most and most of the time when you're applying to these places, you have to have some sort of connection. I had no connections in this world, but that informational interview actually afforded me the connection, you know, because I had already applied. I sort of, what is a literary agent? And she said a bunch of things to me. I mean, it was one of those phone calls where I remember where I was when I had the phone conversation. It was very important to me. And then she, you know, liked what I said. I think, you know, she liked that I actually hadn't had all these internships. Um, cause she, you know, I think that some of that at that time indicated that I was somebody who was a hard worker, I guess. Um so anyway, she flagged my application and then I had, you know, an application process from there and worked at this agency that I was at for 10 years. But you came in in the mailroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did like the sort of, I don't know, I don't even, I can't even think of a TV show example of this, but you did a TV show example of working your way up th- through, yeah. through, uh, a business where yeah. you like came in in the mailroom and mm-hmm. then eventually worked as somebody's assistant and then eventually were an agent yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and so I could imagine like given the fact that everything that you had set your mind to, you'd sort of been able to do. Um, you know, a lot of people like would want to succeed at school and then they can't mm-hmm. or they would want to go to a certain college and then they don't get in there or they would want to have this job and then they, you know, it's like a certain Mm -hmm. brand of person that can actually match their aspirations with like a personality that works for those those aspirations and then, you know, work ethic, certain type of smarts, all this stuff. So I can imagine if like you had done this sort of dream scenario where like came in through the mailroom, now she's an agent, that it would maybe feel even more extreme to have a career changing sickness. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I've, I was very lucky and, um, uh, you know, had a lot of help and all that. Uh, also didn't really understand what I was getting into, which I think helped a little bit at the beginning. Um, I really didn't even know what an agent was even when I was working there for the beginning, you know? (laughs) Um, so what is an agent? So this is how I would describe it is an agent is essentially a seller. And then on the in the book world, a publisher, the editors, they're the buyer. So you were the seller and now you mm-hmm. are a buyer. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah, it was very, uh, it was very challenging to have this thing come up, um, this, this illness. And I started working from home. I was having a difficult time even walking down the block um, and, you know, doing any, I mean, my body was really failing me. There was, it was out of the question for me to go to the office, you know, and even just to try to do stuff from home. So it was very scary. Uh, and I eventually, you know, took a long medical leave from work. Uh, and well, I, I, was, I worked from home for longer than that because I was, you know, I was so unable and unwilling to give up, you know, my stranglehold on my job. Um, and then eventually when that became unmanageable, I took a medical leave. And then eventually when that meant that I wouldn't have health insurance, I came back to work. <laughs> so, and then started to uh, figure out how to um, use different lifestyle and, and and Western and Eastern medicine treatments essentially to try to create um, a life that I could live, a body that I could live in more effectively. Yeah, I, I think that, so like this kind of transitions, and it's a perfect time in the episode too, it transitions into why, I asked you to come on and do this episode today. I mean, I think you're, first of all, you're a really impressive person in terms of your career, you know, just, just to say as a sidebar, like before we get into the next part, you then after working at this, um, company for a really long time, got like headhunted for your next job, which, which, um, is by random house, which is an incredibly 
impressive um, publisher. And so for them to like go after you specifically, a lot of this, you know, you're taking medical leave and then not being sure where your career is going to go. Like there is a part of your story where you came back to work. Um, yeah, but thank you for saying that. Yeah. And you do have like a very, uh, you've, you're like a boss. You have like a cool big job and you still have this going on. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk to you this week specifically um, because it's a very interesting time like in our household and also I'm sure for you and for a lot of people because you are, you know, somebody with a big job. You've got good health insurance. Um, and also you're somebody with an invisible disability um, where a person who might meet you might not know what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. And as we're like walking through all this time of coronavirus um, information, I just have heard so many people talk about that this might be overblown or like that this isn't going to affect any of us is sort of the way people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how how is that sitting with you? Yeah, I, uh, you know, as part of what's going on for me um, with my particular presentation and, and my particular autoimmune disease, I have to take immunosuppressants uh, to as that's that's one of the main ways that I um, can feel better in my body and like live as a functional life. And I have had, you know, the experience over the past few years of having these this sort of immunosuppressed system of mine um, have a very exaggerated response to very minor illnesses. So uh, when something like this, you know, the coronavirus or whatever is is um, is coming or hearing about it, for me, you know, I think I always live in a little bit of a heightened awareness of viruses because something as simple as the common cold can be extremely serious for me. And I'm always, you know, I have to do, I can't live in a bubble, you know, but I have to do as much as I can to be, you know, I wear medical masks when I travel on planes, like even when I feel perfectly fine um, to protect myself from other people, you know? And so there, it can be a little lonely or feel a little strange to have this coronavirus stuff going on and feel here, I guess, maybe some consensus from not from not from everybody, but from some folks who are sort of saying, don't panic, you know, I mean, I'm not saying to panic, but sort of that, like you're saying, this doesn't affect us. But I think that's usually coming from some young, healthy people. And just not everybody is in that category. You know, not everybody who looks healthy is healthy too. You know, that's something that I really didn't have any awareness of before I got sick myself. But as a reality for a lot of people, a lot of queer people, you know. A lot of queer people, yeah. That's something I've thought about, um, how specifically this intersects with our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I heard you say that it can feel lonely. And what do you do to, what do you do with that loneliness? Or, I mean, obviously, besides just speaking it, which is enough, but are, are there other steps that you take to try to comfort yourself or self-soothe around these this type of loneliness? Yeah, I mean, I think the loneliness is sort of feeling sometimes as if I'm having a really different experience of the world than my peers, than the majority of my peers. And I, you know, certainly not the first time I've ever felt that way in my life, you know, growing up biracial in New Hampshire or, you know, being a queer person and coming out and all sorts of different things. So really used to feeling a little bit different and like something (laughs) different is happening for me. Uh, But I have found that a lot it was actually hard for me. I know you said speaking about it is enough. That was hard for me to do for a long time. I had a lot of shame around being ill. I think that I thought there was something, um, there was something sort of morally compromised about me that would make me be sick or not get better, you know? And I know that doesn't make sense, but like logically, but it's how it really felt true to me. So once I was able to start being honest with some more folks about what was going on for me, I found that a lot of other folks have had similar experiences so I could talk to them fewer people in my age range, you know, um, and then, but I found folks in my age range who have similar things going on. That's really helpful too. And, and also being honest with people who don't have this experience, but this particular illness experience, but can relate, uh, to the feeling of having something go on for you that other people don't, don't necessarily see. Um, and that's very serious and that is on your mind all the time, you know, 
that I think a lot of people can relate to. I can certainly relate to that. When you said you did find some people in your age range who have experience with this, firsthand experience with this, where did you look to find folks? Like, how did you try to create that community for yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have a real community around it. I think I've found a bunch of people by accident just having gone through this for, you know, this amount of time at this point. Um, then there was one time I went to Blue Stockings. <laughs> <laughs> they had a group. Blue was, Stockings is a um, it's bookstore a, yeah. in New York. Mm-hmm. And I was on their mailing list. I went to unsubscribe, you know, one day when I was feeling really, um, you know, hardworking about my email inbox. I thought, I'll get through this. And I went to unsubscribe. I said, wait, what is this? And there was an email that said something about a group that was meeting for young people ages, I think, like 21 to 35 who were living with chronic pain or illness. And I couldn't believe it. And I actually went to it. I can't believe I went. It's I don't like to go to things. And I went to this thing. And um there were almost everybody there was queer, you know, and it was really nice to be able to just sit in a group of people who were talking so much nodding of the head, you know, about stuff that I hadn't, you know, tiny stuff that nobody thinks about, you know, um, like people won't will like, you know, look at you in a weird way if you sit down on the bus and take a seat, you know, but you actually need it, but they don't know that you do or whatever the case may be, you know. Um, and then that group has a sort of online chat that I which is helpful since not everybody can make it to one specific location in Manhattan, you know, that often. And I'm not so involved in that group, but it has been helpful to even just have a few of those experiences. Yeah. And I, I also just am realizing as I was speaking earlier that like I said, invisible, invisible disability, and then you said chronic illness. And so I just want to just to like match your language. Does, do both of those feel right to you? I think I would rather, I usually say invisible illness. Okay. Because you don't think about it as a disability. Um, I don't. I don't know. I really sure, don't know. I really don't know. You don't have to have the answers. I don't think so. I think I've heard the term invisible illness more frequently um, from folks who are in similar situations to, to me. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess like it's that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is like. This is how complicated all of this can be. We live together. I don't even know the exact right language to use. Neither do I. Who knows the exact <laughs> right language? Um, when you moved to L.A., um, I guess I know because we talked, you know, when we started, you were talking about like sort of chasing this better health. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like... I mean, I guess I want to continue to talk about, like, the current climate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also want to talk about, like, whether that ended up being true, you know, that there was something here for you Mm -hmm. that could be positive. Because I think a lot of people can also probably relate to the idea of trying to reorder their life. You know, not everybody gets to move. Not everybody gets Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, X, Y, and Z. But... Um, it is like aspirational to imagine being able to make a positive change for yourself. And I guess I'm curious as to like whether it's paid off. Yeah, it's only, it hasn't been so long, um, but I, for me, I think it certainly has. The lack of um, extreme weather, you know, has helped a lot. And also everybody here seems to have, I mean, there's other, you know, being able to to drive um, or not have to go up and down so many stairs. I mean, stairs are such a big part of how New York is even possible because everything is so stacked in the subway and all that. Not having such a stair situation is really, is that's been actually a big help. And, um, but one other thing is everybody here seems to have so much stuff going on in terms of their body, you know, whether it's an illness or not. So there's, (laughs) seems to be some wider open arms in terms of having different uh, food restrictions, having different things that you need for your body. And, you know, certainly in an ideal world, I can go into any city, any place and say, ask for what I need and be specific about it and find a workaround, whatever. But all of that stuff does take energy, you know, and when you're dealing with in a condition where energy is one of the major things that is hard to hold on to, um, it's very helpful to be in a place where I don't have to, I can eat at almost every restaurant there is, you know, and 
people aren't going to be weird if I'm saying something about what I need that's different. Um, I mean, not that I don't mean to say that everybody's so weird about it, but everything is even just labeled on the menus here in terms of what's in the food. Um, well, I, th- I mean, I New York and Chicago are pretty similar, and I, I know, and I travel so much for work. I certainly see the sort of cultural attitude that certain city ha- cities have that are like fight through it, like mm-hmm. fight through it. Like that's what makes us us. Like Chicago has that. New York has that. There's a lot of cities that have that sort of attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when you are somebody who has like a different needs, that is, I mean, even just like f- whatever those needs are, mm-hmm. you know, that's like, that works antithetically to the cultural identity that is like buck up, you yeah. know? And I think, um, you know, that's not healthy for really many people, but it's it also has different consequences for somebody that is just like, uh, I am I have bucked up as much <laughs> as I possibly could. This is me fully bucked, you know, like and um there are also a lot of cities that have like a sort of different attitude. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's sort of what part of what you're talking about. But even, you know, different professions have different attitudes mm-hmm. in that area, and then, you know, different um Families have different attitudes and different groups of friends. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's a really real thing what you're talking about, about like being able to ask for what you need yeah. and get that. Have I feel it just like, be a little easier. Would you say? Have it just be a little easier. Yeah, have it just be a little easier. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think that um, like prior to this year in my life, I was always trying to put off a vibe of like utter strength. Mm -hmm. Like that's just something that was really important to me um, to project because I thought that that's how I would stay safe. Like I'm like, this is how I stay safe. I am an impenetrable fortress. Um, And then when um, my separation happened, it just like, I, I like had to ask for help. And that was very uncomfortable for me and had very positive long-term results um, because it actually – the, like, impenetrable fortress um, can fall if just, like, one random guard is, like, slingshot it, catapulted over the side or whatever. But, like, (laughs) you need need Gandalf. Mm. You need Gandalf the Great and Gandalf the White. You need some, some, like, backup, Mm. and that is – what I learned this year. Yeah. Um, and you're somebody who has like a very strong community around you. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like communities that you're a part of? Is that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, so I'm a sober person. So I have, I'm very lucky to be able to come to a new city. And uh, that was the most vague that was the most vague way I could ask that. I didn't feel like I could have said, do you want to talk about being a sober person? But I just felt like uh, what I'll do is mm-hmm. I'll look sort of off to the side behind you. Yeah. Your eyes really said it all. I knew I was like, yeah. I know what she's saying. Yeah. I'll look <laughs> off to the side behind you and just see if you want to talk about this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm a sober person. Um, uh, I've been sober for a long time and it's a big part of my life. And I'm very lucky to be able to have, um, a big wide open door to plug into a community in any city that I go to for five seconds or for, you know, a different moment in my life. Um, I had a big community in New York. It's so important to me. And, you know, it's, there's sort of a built in way for me to meet people um, that, and not just people to have as acquaintances, but people who really know me and sort of be on a similar path and where there's, um, an assumed mutual help sort of buddies, you know, to walk on the same path together. So I'm very lucky to have that. And, um, it's, it's very helpful to have, have community when anything is going on. Um, although it's a little difficult now to, uh, to access some of that when, um, when stuff, you know, like the coronavirus is going on, it's, it's hard to, it's harder to access a little bit, but, that's yeah. a big community I'm part of. It's awesome. You said for a long time. Uh, how long? Uh, a little over eight years. And um, that would mean that you got sober 
I just happen to be looking at you, slash I also know your age, at a pretty young I was 24. age mm-hmm. in life. And um, I guess, like, as we sort of move toward wrapping this up, that's a, you know, I think about what you were talking about earlier about, like, projecting yourself forward at this breakneck pace. And then at 24, you know, finding out that sobriety was necessary for you Mm -hmm. and then like getting over that hump Mm -hmm. and um i'm sure that took that that takes some adjusting too in terms of well i um like but i can't do this like i can do all these things but i can't do this or whatever i'm just thinking about this person that's like trying to tick all of these boxes off before going to sleep and how much that might um be impacted by finding out you have a limitation in a certain area, Mm -hmm. which then ends up being a place to find community. Yeah. And I think also, you know, some of what you're saying is making me think a little bit about, um, you know, getting how the process of getting to know myself as, you know, as an adult, as I, as I continue to age and realizing that I needed to get sober and stay sober was a part of getting to know myself. And then in, you know, once I, once I got sober, who were learning about who I am, what, what do I, who, what do I really like? Who, who do I really like? What kinds of things am I really interested in? Um, for me, that feels some of the, some of those same questions or some of that, some of those elements of finding out who I am are really present for me, even in this moment with coronavirus, because um, having gotten sick I went through a real process of not um, feeling like I could trust my body because, you know, something was happening that I was powerless over that I didn't want, you know, seeing doctors who drew tons of conclusions about me that were erroneous or didn't believe me, you know, just being a woman going to a doctor, I think is challenging. Um, You can get a lot of weird responses anyway, to then sort of getting a little bit better, getting a lot of unsolicited advice from people who are not medical professionals about which, you know, form of yoga or whatever <laughs> would cure my, you know, ailments Yes, and uh, having to sift through that. And then sort of in this moment right now um, where there's a lot of advice floating around and a lot of people telling us how to feel or not feel or what to do and not do, um, it can be very overwhelming. And I think, you know, I have, I have fought very hard to get to know who I am as a person, you know, which is also something that continues to change. So I can get some information from the outside, but I can also check it with myself and think, well, I know myself, you know, as best as, as best as I can, you know, what, what action makes sense for me to take? You know, if somebody says, we don't really have to stop shaking hands. What if, what do I really want to do? Do I really want to shake hands? I can, I don't have to do that, you know, just tiny things like that. And, it can be really uncomfortable sometimes, but I'm, I guess I'm just thinking of that because it's, there can be little ways, little things like that can make me feel a little lonely. Like, man, I'm, I'm really in this alone, but, or it can make me feel, you know, okay, I really, I really do know myself. I, I like myself. I want to stick up for myself, you know, those kinds of things too. So I don't know, some of what you just said. Just oh, I think like of that. love that. I love that. And I think that's right. Actually, like, I really am going to, I feel, like, very, um, yeah, I feel very affected by what you said because, I I mean, I don't know if everybody feels this way. I have no idea. But, you know, okay, let's just, like, go off of my example. You know, like, I told my parents that I was gay. They were, like... Probably no. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, or I told somebody that this thing happened with this man. You know, like I just, how many times, mm-hmm. and maybe it's everybody. Maybe this is everybody. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's easy to lose track of what you know is true. I think that's really hard to so hard. like hold on to. Mm-hmm. It's like a balloon with a very greased <laughs> string. <laughs> That is slipping out of your paws <laughs> and polluting the environment. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, in some ways, I, I, you know, every single person 
would benefit from moving in the direction that you're talking about. I know I certainly would. Me it's too. Fucking hard. Man, it's so hard. <laughs> it's <a> very difficult. <laughs> and I get it wrong all the time. You know, I get it wrong all the time. I think this is who I am, and the next day it's like, actually, I need this haircut completely changed. I mean, that's what happened to me. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's it's hard. It's messy. It's just very messy, and that's fine. Yeah, that is fine. Okay, well. Guess what? We're almost at the end of our conversation. Okay. And before I send you off into the rest of the day, I want to ask you to shout out a queer out, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Yeah. Well, I would like to say uh, Jackie Woodson, who maybe thought I would say, but Jackie Woodson is, is a writer. She is a super, super talented writer. She she's lives, been on this very show. She's been on the show. She lives in New York. And, you know, she, for me, is a queer out because she has she's a little bit ahead of me you know on the path of being a person I think she's you know two decades older than me and she has a life that looks attractive to me you know and it's I feel so relieved to even hear myself say that and I'm not talking about somebody's career success you know alone um because she has, she's had a great career, but I think about, you know, I've been to her house a ton of times and she has a house that feels very open to anybody to come inside. She has, you know, a long-term relationship. She has a huge family that is also made up of tons of friends that are like family, you know, and she's very involved in a bunch of communities that are important to her. And so is her partner and so is her whole family. And she seems to me to have a really nice balance of different areas in her life and also stuff that's important to her and that's her stuff on her own, but that's also, and that, you know, balanced with family and community stuff that's important to her too. So I really like being able to see somebody a little bit ahead of me on the life path and think what this person has going on is very attractive to me. You know, I hope to have a life that looks, or I guess a life that feels like that um, someday. Well, Katie, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the show. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. 